All right, well, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles this morning to Romans chapter number 12, verse 2. What a joy to get to spend time meditating on Scripture. That's, that's where the Lord really works in our lives. So today it's Romans 12, verse 2. Let's read verses 1 and 2 because they run right into each other. Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And Lord, I pray that you would give grace, grace upon grace this morning, Lord, that you'd help me to be able to articulate and explain your truth. And if, if in anything, Lord, I am missing it or I am wrong, Lord, I pray that that would not cause any error to come to the minds of your people. Lord, make this church a discerning, a biblically discerning church where they can weigh Scripture with Scripture, that we would grow up into maturity, Lord, as a church family. Help us, Lord, to love each other and to love your truth and to love Jesus Christ. And so be with us now, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The book of Romans is really the explanation and the application of the gospel. The theme of the whole book is in verse 16 where Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation. And then he goes on to explain what that good news of salvation is in the first 11 chapters, and then he applies that good news of salvation in the last five chapters. Chapters 1 through 11 are the explanation of the gospel. Chapter 12 through 16 are the application of the gospel. And he really sums up the first 11 chapters with three different statements. Number one, God has a problem with us. That's chapters 1 to 3. The problem is that we are unrighteous. It says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. God's problem with us is that all of us, all mankind, are unrighteous. We are rebellious and disobedient, and so we are condemned by his holy law. Number two, though, the book of Romans says God has a solution for us. That's chapters 3 to 5. The solution is that he's going to give us his own righteousness. We have no righteousness to appear before him, but thank God, as a gift by his grace, he credits us, imputes the very righteousness of Jesus Christ to those who believe on him. And that's what we mean by justification. We are justified, the righteousness of God is put to our account. That's chapters 3 to 5. And then thirdly, God has a plan for us. God has a problem with us, God has a solution for us, and God has a plan for us. And that plan includes setting us free from sin, the slavery of sin, setting us free from the law by uniting us to Jesus Christ and then causing his spirit to come and dwell us so that we put to death the deeds of the body and look forward to glory with Christ forever. And that plan also includes to 
save the Gentiles, and by doing that, making the Jews jealous, so that both the fullness of the Gentiles and all Israel come into the kingdom of God. That's chapter 9 through 11. Which brings us to chapter 12. And last week we looked at the first verse, which is pivotal. It's, it's central to the understanding of the rest of the five chapters. And there in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul starts to tell us how to apply the gospel. And what he does is he says, in light of all God's mercies in chapters 1 through 11, this is what you're to do. You are to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, which is your spiritual service of worship. So basically, in light of all that God has done for us in Christ, unconditionally surrender yourself, all of who you are, to God, and allow Him to reign over your life and become obedient to the will of God. That's really verse 1 in a nutshell. And he says, this is your spiritual worship. Now, we tend to think our spiritual worship is what we do from 10 o'clock to 11 o'clock on Sunday mornings when we sing praises to God. That's only a tiny fraction of your spiritual worship. Your spiritual worship is whenever you decide to obey God by presenting your body to him to do his will, instead of your own will or, your, or some sinful will. But if you take your body and make a decision, I'm going to present my eyes, my ears, my mouth, my stomach, my feet, my hands. I'm going to present these members of my body to Christ to do His will right now. That's worship. You're worshiping 24-7, all through the day, all the time. So that's verse 1. But now Paul continues in verse 2. And here he gives us two commands, and then a reason to obey those two commands. One command is negative. Do not be conformed to this world. One command is positive, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then there is the result that flows from the obedience to those two commands. It's really an uncon a conditional promise. If you obey the condition of not being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind, here's what you can expect to happen. You will prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So let's start off with the negative command. He says, do not be conformed to this world. Now let's focus in just for a moment on that word conform. Conform. Do not be conform. The word means to assume a similar outward form. In the olden days, before they had automatic ice makers, you would have these ice trays. Maybe some of you still do. And you pour water in there, right, and put it in your freezer. And the next day you pull it out and knock them out of that ice tray. And you find these ice cubes that are perfectly conformed to the ice tray that you put it in, right? Or those of you who make jello, you take the liquid and you pour it in those jello forms and put it in the fridge. And then a few hours later, you can pull it out, and there, lo and behold, it's perfectly conformed to the mold that it was poured into. That's the idea here. Do not be conformed externally. Don't, don't assume a similar outward form to the world. Don't allow the world to squeeze you into its mold. Don't be like that jello that's poured into the, the, the form the mold of the world so that when you popped out, you look just like the world on the outside. That's the idea. Now let's think about his word here, this world. Do not be conformed to 
this world. What does Paul mean by the world? Well, someone says, okay, he means planet Earth. He means this world. Well, he can't mean that. Because he says, don't be conformed to it. And I don't know of any way that I could be conformed to this planet. So I don't think he has that, that meaning here. He must have to do with the thoughts and opinions and values and priorities of the people that live in this world. But he can't mean every person in the world because there's a lot of Christ followers in this world. He must mean those who are not following Christ. Don't be conformed to their thoughts and values and opinions and philosophies of those who don't follow Jesus Christ. In fact, the word world literally means age, this age. And so we could say, we must not be conformed to the thoughts and values of those who live for this present age without living for God or the age to come. And that would be in line with what we read in John's writings, in 1 John 5.19. He says, we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So he's talking about the whole world of unregenerate, unsaved people. They lie in the power of Satan, the evil one. Now, when he says, do not be conformed to this world, we need to understand this is a present tense verb. Do not be conformed. And in the Greek language, a present tense verb has the idea of continuous action. They have a verb that's aorist, and aorist is a once-completed action. That's not what this verb is talking about. Do not be conformed, or let's put it this way. Refuse to be conformed moment by moment, day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, for the rest of your life to this world. This isn't something you can do once and oh, got that down. This is something that you have to continually do. Also notice that there's a pressure on us to conform to this world. Because if there wasn't a pressure, he wouldn't have to tell us not to do it. It would be easy just not to be conformed to this world. But there, the world exerts a pressure on us. When you're out in the world, none of us want to be disliked. All of us want to be liked. All of us want to be well thought of. And when you're in social situations in the world and people are talking and they expect you to believe just like they do, there is this subtle pressure on us to conform, to take on the outward form of the people we are around. And I was just thinking about this, this last week. You know, the world has changed its mind on a lot of things just within my own <laughs> lifetime. When I was growing up, in fact, just until about 10 years ago, everybody knew that a marriage was between one man and one woman. No one dreamed. In fact, since the beginning of civilization, no one has ever defined marriage as between a man and a man, or a woman and a woman, but our world has completely redefined the idea of marriage. And they expect all of us just to kind of go along with it and accept that. The problem is we're Christians. This is our standard, not the opinions of the world that we live in. We have to go back to this book, and how does God define marriage? That's how we must define marriage as his followers. Another thing that's changed in my lifetime is the normalization, normalization of homosexuality. It's just become an alternate lifestyle. When I was growing up, it was looked at as moral behavior. Well, the world doesn't look at it that way anymore. 
they've changed their mind. They've repositioned their whole thought process about that. Another one we can look at is fornication. When I was growing up as a kid, we all knew it was wrong. Now, people still did it, but it was looked on as taboo. I mean, with two young people moved in together, everyone knew that, that boy, boy, look at what they're doing. That's, that's just not right. It's like a scandal. Well, today, everybody does. I mean, I have employees, and probably 95% of them are in that situation. That they may look at it as normal today. The world has completely changed its mind on what they think is right and what is wrong. The idea of abortion. Before 1973, it was illegal in the United States. Well, it's not illegal anymore, and 60 million babies have been murdered in the last, what is it, almost 50 years. We look at Hitler in World War II. He exterminated 6 million Jews. Ten times that in terms of babies have been murdered over the last 50 years here in our own country. So the world has changed its mind on a lot of things. We must not give in to the pressure of this world to conform to its philosophies and its thinkings. We must go to this book and say, Lord, what do you say about these issues? And we must embrace those ideas because we're followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said that his followers were in the world, but they were not of the world. We get that from John 17. Let me just show you. This is his high priestly prayer there in John 17. And he says in verse 11, he says, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name. But then if you go to verse 14, he says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world. So in verse 11, he says they are in the world. In verse 14, he says they are not of the world. That's our position. I think what he's saying is that we are aliens and strangers while we're in this world. We're in it, that's for sure, but we're not of it like the rest of the people here. Heaven is our real home. And we're like the pilgrims who came over from, uh, from Europe in the 1600s, and they traveled across the sea, and they lived here in the United States. They were called pilgrims because they were coming to a new land. They were really from the old country, but now they're coming to this new country. Well, our citizenship, the Bible says, is in heaven, not here. We live here, and we have to be responsible stewards while we live here, but our true home is heaven. So the question for you to consider this, first of all, this morning is, are you worldly? Would you say you're worldly? Now let's try to define that. Because yeah. <laughs> that's not easy to define. Right. Some Christians, especially if you go back a generation or two, would say, this is what it means to be worldly. If you're worldly, you dance, you go to movies, you drink, you smoke, you play cards, or you gamble. I mean, those are all the biggies back in that generation. <laughs> and if someone did that, even if they went to church or said they were a Christian, they would be considered worldly. But notice, all of those things are external. They're external actions. Paul says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now think with me here. Paul didn't say, let me go back to Romans 12. He didn't say, do not be conformed to this world. But... Do not be conformed to this world, but do not 
conform your outward actions to sinful ones. I'm, I'm not saying this the way I wanted to. Let me see if I can get it. it. See, the word but there, do not be conformed to this world but, that means a contrast is coming. Mm -hmm. So the contrast is, be transformed by the renewing of your mind is contrasted to being conformed to this world. So the opposite of being conformed to this world is not to stop committing all the external sins of the flesh. The opposite of being conformed to this world is to have a renewed mind. You see what I'm saying? So worldliness has to do with a way of thinking. Do you see how Paul puts that together? Worldliness has, a, a, has to do with your thinking, your values, your philosophies, the way you consider all of life. And the way to overcome worldliness has to do with your mind. You have to have your mind renewed. To have a renewed mind means you must make your mind new. Renew your mind. It's got to be reshaped, renewed by the gospel and by the truth of the word of God. <coughs> so this has to do with philosophies and values. It means a worldly person would consider all of life just like the rest of the world does. And they do it without reference to the lordship of Jesus Christ. The world seeks to do their own will. The Christian must seek to do the will of our Father who is in heaven. Jesus made that abundantly clear in Matthew 7, 21. Only the people who do the Father's will make it. Do you see how important that is? If we call ourselves Christians, but go about through life seeking to do our own will, that's a very dangerous place to be in. Because Jesus said people who don't do the will of God won't enter the kingdom. So, a person who is worldly would be a person who lives for now, for this age, not for eternity. It would be a person who values self-esteem and self-gratification. Self is at the center instead of God. That's a worldly person. You remember? Well, you probably don't. But there's no beer commercial. Schlitz. It goes like this. You only go around once in life. You've got to grab all the gusto you can. Remember that one? That's a worldly philosophy. We don't just go around once in life. We're headed for everlasting glory with Jesus Christ. So the essence of worldliness is living for this life and neglecting God and the life to come. It's setting a supreme value on money and possessions and comfort and fleshly pleasures and neglecting God and faith and Christ, and sanctification, and suffering, and perseverance. So we need to ask ourselves questions like this. What does the world believe? What does the world value? What does the world pursue? And if we think, and believe, and value, and pursue the very same things that the rest of the world does, we are worldly. That's why we need to have a renewed mind. Because we ought not think, and value, and pursue the same things that the rest of the world does because we're headed to our eternal home. So, now that we've set all of that up, are you worldly? Are you living for now or eternity? What's your real focus? Are you living under the lordship of Jesus Christ, meaning that he's your master, and you actually go to him and ask him before making decisions, and seek to obey what you believe to be his will? That's living under the Lordship of Christ. And if we're just making our own decisions, doing whatever we want to do without consulting the Lord, that, that's a worldly person. Yeah. If that's you, 
This morning is a wake-up call, and it's time to repent of that. It's time to repent and ask the Lord for grace that you would live under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Do not be conformed to this world. Second command, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The first one's negative, don't do this. Second one's positive, but do this. Now let's meditate on it. He says, be transformed. Be transformed. We must refuse to be squeezed into the world's philosophies and value systems, but on the contrary, we must be transformed. Now that word transformed is the very same Greek word that is used in the Gospels when it says that Jesus was transfigured. Remember the transfiguration of Christ? He was on the mountain, and all of a sudden, his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light, as no launderer on earth can whiten them, the Bible says. What's happening there? I believe what's happening is that the inner glory that was in the person of Jesus Christ was coming out. Usually it was veiled, and people couldn't see that glory. But the Lord was allowing who he really was on the inside, his glorious deity, to shine forth. And the disciples saw it with their own eyes. We are also to be transformed or transfigured, you might say. The inner glory of who you are as a Christian, the Holy Spirit dwells within you. There's glory dwelling in you if you're a regenerate child of God. That should be expressed outwardly, just like it was in Jesus Christ's life. Your face should shine like the sun. There should be a glory to you. There should be a joy. There should be a peace in your life. There should be a supernatural essence to the quality of your life. So, do not be conformed. That has to do with changing the outward actions to fall in line with other people. Don't be conformed to this world by letting them change who you are on the outside. Instead, be transformed, which means to be changed on the inside so that it expresses itself ultimately on the outside. Conforming has to do with the external. Transformed has to do with the internal. And the Greek word that he uses for be transformed is metamorpho. Now, metamorpho, can you think of an English word that sounds kind of like that? Metamorphosis. That's exactly the word. He's saying, go through a metamorphosis. Be metamorphosized by the renewing of your mind. Now, we know what metamorphosis is, right? A little caterpillar builds its cocoon, and it goes inside the cocoon and lives there for 5 to 21 days, and it comes out. Folks, this is... I marvel when I think about this. One kind of a creature goes into the cocoon and another comes out. And it has wings now. How does that happen? I mean, that is so crazy. That's so amazing. A caterpillar goes in, a butterfly comes out. Or think of a tadpole. A tadpole's got this long tail and it looks kind of like a fish. It swims around and it starts to lose its tail and grow legs, upper limbs and lower limbs. How, how do you just grow limbs? You know, how does a creature just start growing a leg? But it happens. It goes through a metamorphosis because it has the inner nature of a frog. But though this tentacle, that nature of a frog, starts manifesting itself so it looks so, like a frog. Or and that caterpillar has the nature of a butterfly, so eventually it starts looking like a butterfly. He says, you be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Go through a metamorphosis. 
the inner glory that is in you by the Holy Spirit, let it express itself so you start looking like the Spirit of God. Amen. You start looking like Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Now, we've got to go through a little English class here for a minute. Be transformed as a present imperative passive verb. And all of those things are important. Present tense means it's ongoing and continuous. We don't get transformed once and then it's over. We are continually being transformed for the rest of our lives. From the moment you become a Christian until you die, you are being transformed. It's also an imperative. That means it's a command. This is not a suggestion. This is not advice. This is not one of many options. This is a command of God. You must be transformed. You can't just refuse this and say, I don't think I want to do that. No, if you're a Christian, you must be transformed. And thirdly, it's in the passive mood. He doesn't say transform yourselves, right? He says be transformed. Now, that means that you are not the one doing the acting. You are the one being acted upon. If it's in the passive voice. So if you're the one being acted upon, who's doing the acting? We know the answer to this because it was our opening scripture from 2 Corinthians 3.18. The Holy Spirit is the one that's doing the transforming. He's transforming us. Be transformed. I'm not transforming myself. I'm being transformed as the Holy Spirit does the work. And you can say, well, great. That means that the Holy Spirit is completely responsible for this. And I don't have to do anything. I can just kind of wait around to be transformed. Well, there's a problem with that because he says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So there's something God's responsible for transforming me, but there's also something I'm responsible for. I need to renew my mind. I'm responsible for that. I have a role to play in my sanctification. I must renew my mind. Now, he says here, by the renewing of your mind, we must make our minds new. We must purge out wrong, unbiblical thinking. And we must replace that wrong, unbiblical thinking with true thoughts. In other words, we must go from a man-centered approach to life to a God-centered approach to life. We must think God's thoughts after him. We must learn to think what... We must take this book and pretend you're... Here's your mind. And this book becomes sort of a filter over your mind. And you've got all these thoughts coming from TV and radio and people talking and going to work and all these thoughts are going to your head. You need to have a Bible filter over your head so that you discern and judge between all of this stuff going in, what is true and what is wrong, what is false. So this mind has to become renewed so it thinks the way God wants it to think. It thinks according to truth. And I believe the only, the only real way that can happen is by reading and meditating on the Word of God. Because that's our only objective standard for ultimate eternal truth is the Word of God. The key to a transformed life, if you don't hear anything else, I think this is the most important statement I'm going to say today. The key to a transformed life is the renewing of your mind. That's exactly what he says in verse 2. That's how important it is for you to give yourself to renewing your mind. Because if you don't renew your mind, don't expect for a transformed life. You want to be different? You want to change? You want to become more holy? 
This is the this is the way God has set it up. You need to renew your mind. And so I'm going to give you some suggestions for how to do that this morning. Number one, read the scriptures regularly. By that I mean consistently. Not a come to church and hear someone preach on Sunday and then never open the book the rest of the week. That's kind of like a guy who gorges himself on Sunday and then fasts for six days in a row. You think, that's weird. That's crazy for somebody to do that. That's how, how crazy it is for you to come to church and hear the scriptures and then never read it for the rest of the week. Amen. So we must regularly feed on and meditate on scripture. Don't expect a transformed life if you're not willing to discipline yourself to regularly take in scripture. And so I'm speaking to all of us here. All of us have the same responsibility before God to spend time with him in his word. Secondly, read the scriptures expectantly. So when you come in the morning and you're reading the scriptures, expect God to, to show up. Expect him to speak to your heart. Expect him to show you things from his word. Debbie and I have a date night every Monday night. And... Uh, those are some of our most favorite times, I think, of the week, is spending time with each other Monday night. We, all we do is get a coffee, drink, and go to the park and talk, you know, or listen to a book or something. But it's just very precious because we get to connect. And you know we're going to connect that night every single week. Well, set a date morning instead of a date night. Set a date with the Lord every day. And I want to encourage you to do the first thing because if you don't, yeah. you're probably not going to have, it's not going to happen. So set a, set a date with the Lord because you need communion with him. It's even more, to, more important to have communion with the Lord than it is even with your own wife or your own husband. So, and when you do that, expect that you're going to spend some time connecting with Christ and he's going to commune with you. He's going to show you things as you read his word. His spirit's going to be working. And so read the scriptures, expect them. Thirdly, read the scriptures humbly. What I mean by that is that if you come to the Bible with your mind already made up, why do you even read? So we need to come saying, Lord, teach me. I may be mixed up. I might have false ideas. Let the word of God challenge your thinking. This is our standard. It's not our preconceived ideas and opinions. So let it challenge you. If, if you already believe one way and you see a verse that sounds the other way, deal with it. Say, Lord, how does this fit? Is my thinking wrong? Do I need to adjust a little bit of, of what I believe was the truth? Maybe I need to incorporate this other aspect of truth to have more of a full orb understanding of this doctrine in Scripture. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. We need to go, you know, A proud person probably won't even read the Bible because he thinks he has no need. Mm -hmm. You need to be humble and you need to say, Lord, teach me. I, I have had to change my mind on a lot of things over my Christian life. <laughs> a lot of things. And probably there will be things in the future that I'll have to change. And that's simply because I'm trying to expose myself over and over again to truth and let it change me. James 1.21 tells us this very, very succinctly and clearly. James says in verse or chapter 1.21, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your soul. So we have to receive the word with humility. Read the scriptures regularly, expectantly, 
humbly, and then finally consecutively. Yeah. What I mean by that is read straight through books of the Bible from mm -hmm. beginning to end. When I was a young Christian, we didn't know any better, and we would kind of dip here one day and dip there another day, and but one day and then maybe to Ephesians 6 the other day and Isaiah 42 and then Genesis, which is kind of dipped and read a paragraph or so and think, okay, Lord, speak to my heart. And I'm not saying God can't use that, but I'm saying to you, I think a much better way is to read consecutively through books because if you just dip here and there, you never get the context of that book. You don't know the flow of thought of the author of that book. And truth comes by seeing... What God revealed to that original author to deliver to his original audience, we're to understand that and make application of that to our lives. So that's my encouragement. When we, we too often we treat the book, the Bible like a magic book. It's magical. Well, it is supernatural, it is divine, but I don't think we should treat it like a magic book. I think we should treat it like we would treat other literature. It is literature. It is it is, yeah, literature is all over. There's various forms of literature. You've got parable, you've got history, you've got prophecy there, you've got all kinds of various types of literature. So we ought to be applying the same rules for the various types of literature that we read in the Bible that we would apply any other place. Would we go to the writings of Shakespeare and read in chapter 42 a little bit and then read in chapter 3 the next day? We wouldn't, we wouldn't understand anything about Shakespeare's writing. Mm -hmm. Would you go to a novel and read a few verses from the, or sentences from the last chapter and then a few from the middle, then the end, and then... No, it, didn't, it wouldn't make any sense. You're not getting the full message that the author wanted to communicate. So let's read regularly, expectantly, humbly, and consecutively. Let me just ask you this morning. Are you being transformed by the renewing of your mind? Yes or no? You had to give a yes or no answer. There's no maybes here. You had to choose one or the other. What is it? Is it happening in your life? If it's no, you're disobeying the command of God. This is a command. Romans 12, 2 is a command. And so we must repent of disobedience to that command. And we must change immediately, right now, today. We must make changes to that. I want to encourage you, exhort you, to make this a habit. You know, over in 1 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Mm. Some things in the Christian life require discipline. They require you making godly habits in your life. One of the best habits you can ever form is spending time with him the very first thing you do when you get up that day. I want to encourage you to consider that. Not, not, and not just to consider that. Do it. Make that a habit in your life. We ought not make excuses why this is happening or justify this. We simply should confess this as sin and determine by the grace of God that we will obey him. We will renew our minds. All right, let's go to the last one here. We've seen the positive or the negative command, the positive command, and now the result of obeying the command so that you may prove what the will of God is. Now, that word prove. There's really two ideas in the one Greek word, and it, one English word really doesn't bring out both of the ideas. But the NIV, I usually don't 
like the NIV that much, but in this case, I think it does a good job because it brings up both of the ideas that are within this one Greek word. This is how it says, uh, Romans 12, 2. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. So the idea behind this is to approve by testing. Once you are transformed by the renewing of your mind, you're going to be able to Test and approve of what the will of God is in your life. Now, some people think that if you're trying to figure out the will of God, you should just pray and that God's going to give you divine revelation and he'll just instantly give it to you and that's all there is to it. And I totally know that God can do that. If he wants to do that, he can. But I don't think that's his usual way of showing us his will. Some people try to live their Christian life by hearing voices. They try to get God's voice on this or God's voice on that. That's not what Romans 12, 2 is talking about. When it talks about the renewing of your mind, it has to do with, as you grow to spiritual maturity, learning to discern the will of God. So God's aim is not just to immediately give us all the answers. God's aim is our spiritual maturity and our sanctification, which only happens as our minds are renewed and we are transformed. If God, if God just told us all the answers instantly, well, how are we going to ever grow spiritually? We're not learning uh, to be able to discern his, his will that way. Now, what does he mean here by the will of God? that you may prove what the will of God is. The Bible uses that phrase in at least two senses. Sometimes when it talks about the will of God, it's talking about the sovereign will of God. And what that means is, this is what God is going to do. This is his will that can't be thwarted. This is his will that always comes to pass. Like in Daniel 4.35, King Nebuchadnezzar said, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? No one can ward off God's hand. This is the sovereign will of God. Or Ephesians 1.11. We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Or Proverbs 16.33. The lot is cast into the lap. But it's every decision is from the Lord. This is the sovereign will of God. Now the problem with this will of God is that God has not told us what it is. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. We don't know what God is going to do in the future. We might know a few things. Like in the book of Revelation, we might know some of the biggies that are coming up. But most of the day-to-day -day events that are going to unfold throughout history, we just don't know what those are. They're secret to us. And so we can't test those things because they're not disclosed to us. Okay, so if Paul isn't talking about the sovereign will of God, maybe he's talking about another definition of the will of God in the Bible, which is God's commands. Sometimes when the Bible talks about the will of God, it's talking about the commands of God. For example, it's the will of God that we not lie or steal or cheat or murder or commit adultery or fornication. That's the will of God. First Thessalonians 4.3 says, This is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So there's a command. Abstain from sexual immorality. He says, that's the will of God. 
Well, that's not the sovereign will of God, because the sovereign will of God can't be thwarted, but that command can be, and often is thwarted. We often disobey that command. Or 1 Thessalonians 5.18, In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. There's a command. In everything give thanks. Now, it's not the sovereign will of God, because many people don't do that. But it is his will, because it's, just the, it's the command of God. So, when Paul says here, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, I would say he can't be talking about the sovereign will of God because we can't test that will because we don't know what it is. And he can't be talking about God's commands because it's impertinent of us to test what God has clearly revealed in Scripture. We're not supposed to be testing that. We're supposed to be obeying that. It's already been revealed. So if it's not even one of those two definitions, what does he mean there by the will of God? And I want to suggest to you that what he means there is something like this. Making godly decisions when we do not have a specific command from God in Scripture. Making godly decisions when we don't have a specific command. For example, there's nowhere in the Bible that tells you exactly who you're supposed to marry. Right? or where you're supposed to work, where you should live, what car you should drive, what cell phone plan you should buy, where you should put your kids in school. I mean, those things are, are not given to us in Scripture. But we can learn to make godly decisions concerning all areas of our life and discover in this way the will of God. Yeah, yeah. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And this requires spiritual maturity, it requires discernment. It, it requires you to grow in your faith to be able to come to these conclusions. The Bible might point us in a general direction, but then we must fine-tune that general direction for our life. I think this is what Paul was talking about in Philippians 1.9. He says, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent. Same idea as Romans 12, too. Discernment and approving the things that are excellent. Or Ephesians 5.10, he says, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. So you've got all these specific situations in your life, and it's your responsibility to seek to learn what is pleasing to the Lord in that particular situation. And a lot of times there is no specific command of God to guide you, so you must learn to test in order to approve what is the will of God for that situation. Let me just share a quick example with you guys that came up in my life. You, the men already know about it. <laughs> but I, in, in, in addition to being an elder here, I'm also a business owner. And we had a situation with an unreasonable customer. My employee went out to his house to clean the gutters, knocked on the door, and nobody was home. So he set up his ladder and just started doing a job. And the customer came out screaming at him to get off of the roof. And then later, he emailed me and said, I'm going to send out a roofer to see if there's any damage to my roof where your, where your guy walked, and I expect you to pay anything that was damaged. So I waited. The roofer went out. He took a look at the roof, and he looked all over the roof, not just the one little section that he walked on, but the entire roof. He found 20 tiles that had hairline cracks in them. And so the customer said, I expect you to pay for all of these roof tiles to be replaced. And I responded, well, he only walked 
on this section, and only 60% of the tiles that the roof was going to replace were in this section. So I'll go ahead and send you a check. I think I was going to send $450. The total was $750. He says, that's not acceptable. You need to pay the whole thing. And he went into this whole litany of reasons why none of them had any relevance to this issue. And so I thought, what do I do in this situation? And I was really agitated. Trying to, yeah, I was losing my peace over this. <laughs> Talking to Debbie, and then I went to the men's meeting. And I said, guys, what should I do? I called up my, old, my friend Kelly. Kelly, what would you do in this situation? And as the, as the Lord would have it, we were re praying through 1 Peter chapter 3, and there's a bunch of verses that just seemed like the Lord was speaking from those verses. There he was. <laughs> and so I, I really think the Lord helped me to discern, to test, to test what is the specific will of God for me in that situation. I didn't have a Bible verse that told me. But I had general principles kind of guiding me in that direction, and I had the counsel of other godly men that were speaking in my life, and so basically, my, my decision, my conclusion was that the Lord just wanted me to pay the whole thing and tried to use it to be a good testimony, a, a Christian testimony. And so I wrote him a letter, told him I'm doing this because I'm a Christian, not because I believe I really owe you anything. In fact, I probably didn't owe him anything, to be honest, because we don't crack tiles when we walk on earth. Anyway, that's beside the point. The point was I was trying to discern what God's specific will was for me in that situation and then try to obey it. So... You guys all have situations that are going to come up, probably many times a day when you don't have a thus saith the Lord. But God wants you to grow in your discernment, test that situation, and apply biblical principles to discern, okay, this is what I believe to be the will of God in this situation in my life. But even that's not everything because he says that uh, it, we're not just testing the will of God, we are also approving it. Remember those two twin ideas? And that's talking about taking a delight in it. Not just knowing what it is, that's one thing, but it's another thing to really find joy and delight in that will. And the reason we can do that is because he says here, that will of God is good, it's not bad, it's good, it's acceptable. Now, Greek word means pleasing. It's good and it's pleasing and it's perfect. There's no defect in God's will. So we can actually approve it. We can find pleasure and joy and delight when we know the will of God and we've done it. Because we know that God is pleased and that he's using this to conform me into the image of his own son. So my question to you is, are you growing in your ability to discern the will of God in specific situations where you don't have a clear command. This is what God wants in your life. He wants you to grow in maturity so that you can do this. Do you approve, rejoice, and take pleasure in God's will? Now this week, I exhort you, if you're not, if you haven't developed this godly habit of spending time with the Lord in His Word regularly, consistently, expectantly, humbly, consecutively, all of those things, I want to exhort you to begin to develop that as a habit. You know, we've got lots of habits in our life. Some are good, some are bad. This is a great habit. A great habit. It's going to serve you for the rest of your life. It's going to bring you into union and communion with your Savior for the rest of your life. Give yourself to this. 
We will never be transformed unless our minds are renewed. And that's our responsibility. Let's pray. Lord, please help us to be obedient to this command. We thank you that you are in charge of transforming us. And we pray that we would be obedient to renew our minds. Lord, for anybody here who's struggling with this, who just lacks discipline, who's never developed a good godly habit, Lord, would you give them special favor at this very moment? We pray, Lord, that we would discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. Increase, Lord, our delight in Jesus Christ so that we do look forward to spending time in your word expectantly believing and knowing that you are going to show up. You, you are going to commune with us. You are going to show us things. Make us more like your son. In Jesus' name.